I am my own worst critic. And for many, many years, I struggled. I just really physically hurt. It physically hurt. My stomach hurt when I would write, when I would read my own poems, when I would try to edit. And I was just, just, just why can't I, why can't I make it better? What's good? I'm Nikisha Elise Williams, and this is Black and Published, bringing you the journeys of writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. It's National Poetry Month, y'all, and kicking us off is Cuban-American poet Andy Rojas. He authored the collection Third Winter in Our Second Country. On this episode, we discuss the trauma of Andy's immigrant experience, how the lasting effects of colonialism have impacted his personal view of race and otherness, and why he centers these topics when he's writing. No, no matter what the official line in Cuba is, there is white privilege in Cuba. It is obvious. Darker people are as, as discriminated there as they are here. And in fact, I think in some ways, even more openly. Exploring that pain of his home country when writing has taken Andy on a long journey from receiving his MFA to switching careers and going to law school. Andy's worked in private practice, the public sector, and is now your friendly neighborhood tax man. But the poetry has always remained. The turning points he found that made poetry joyful and pleasurable, and why it took a 10-year break before he was able to come back to his first love of writing. When Black and Published continues. All right, so let's get started. So the first question is, when did you know that you were a writer? Oh, I started very early when I was in in school, uh, in middle school. I started writing little stories, um, prose, you know, kid stuff. And so there wasn't really a time that I wasn't writing. um, But I think the decision that I said, yes, I'm going to pursue this and I'm going to try to do good work um, came in college. Um, I took a couple of creative writing classes um, and was encouraged by, by the professor. And I thought, the professors, and I thought, okay, well, uh, I'm going to try to do this. So it, it just kind of was something I did naturally, like running and walking. And one day I decided I'm going to try to take it to the next level. Do you remember the exact moment or what was it about the creative writing courses that you took in college that made you say, okay, running, walking, writing, that is my life? I'm not sure that there was a moment, a specific triggering event that happened. I do remember being being nominated and winning a creative writing contest and then being selected by several magazines to publish. And it sort of just kind of naturally happened. Like, yes, I'm writing and I'm sending stuff out and it's being published. So it sort of happened. Um, But my identity isn't necessarily that of a writer. I, I think of myself as a person who does a lot of things. Among them is writing. And I just want to do it the best I possibly can. There was no great moment of revelation that, oh, I'm a writer. I just sort of lived it. It was like breathing. So you said that writing is among many of the things that you do and you're a person first. What was it about poetry that made you say that's the path that you wanted to pursue as a writer and not something else or some other form? I I started out trying to write fiction um, and 
the results that I was getting kept pushing me towards poetry. Poetry seemed to be the one that was taking me places. And I realized at a certain point, I had to make a decision. You know, what am I going to concentrate on? And it's, it, to me, at that point, it seemed like poetry was my strength and my strong suit. And I was getting um, visibly better at it. Um, it was pleasurable. I wrote, I still kept writing fiction, but I didn't seem to have it. I didn't seem to have what it takes to write fiction that people will go, wow. As opposed to poems that at various stages, that audience responds, the people reading would go, wow, this, this is like really nice. This is very good. And so, and I agree. I agreed internally that that was my strong suit. And I love it. Um, it's something that I enjoy reading um, very much. And so I enjoy writing it as well. So I definitely, when I was reading the collection, had to go back and read a few lines over again because it was like, mm, wow, that that hit or I felt that what you were trying to convey. Um, was it the lyricism of poetry that pulled you more toward it because you don't always get that same lyricism or rhythm or musicality in fiction? Or was it the validation that you can get immediate positive feedback and reinforcement from the poetry that you could not find in the fiction? Um, well, my, my writing process is very slow. Um, it takes me a long time. To, my first few drafts are horrible. And for a long time, I had to learn to live, you know, just hold my nose and write and keep going. And then eventually a few lines would start coming together and I would be able to. I, I learned early on that I was a slow writer and not pay attention to the first few drafts. So those were huge messes. And so what eventually what attracted me was um, I have a history, a family, you know, there was several layers of trauma growing up and then being an immigrant and leaving and then leaving another town in the United States and moving. And there seemed to be this sense of out of, out of controlness, um, more emotionally, um, biochemically and so on. And poetry, um, I would be able to create an order in the page, a structure in the page that was everything that I was not. I was able to create these structures that held together and, were, and hopefully were more poised than I was and were more elegant um, and, and seemed to have their own presence. And so uh, crafting a poem for me was, was, was sort of like an, an exercise in imposing a structure and an order uh, into the world that I didn't really experience uh, in many other ways. Um, and, and yes, I mean, one of the things that attracts me to poetry is, of course, it's, it's, it's musicality, it's lyricism. Um, although that's probably my weakest point because I'm not a native speaker. Sometimes I feel a little clunky. like Okay. So when I read the collection, I actually read it out loud because I was just trying to yes. read it. And I was like, it's, it wasn't working for me to just read the words on the page. I had to read them out loud to try to hear them. So for me, as a, a native English speaker, I did find the lyricism in it when I was following it. And then I would go back and read it again. But I want to go back to something you said about, you know, almost like poetry being something that you were able to control, whereas so much of your life was out of control because you are an immigrant and you're not a native speaker and you had prior trauma. 
you are Cuban American. You um, came to came to the United States when you were 13. What was your first city in the in this country? My mom, my sister, and I uh, came in during the Marielle boat lift <clears throat> back in 1980. My father had been here for a few years. He crewed a boat, and then the government would give the people that were in the boat a certain number of family members that they could put in the boat, and then the government would put in whatever people they wanted to put in, with a few being mental patients and, and criminals about well, it's approximately 3% of the Mariel Boatlift uh, were uh, either incarcerated or committed to mental institutions. So we ended up in Key West very briefly. We stayed overnight. And I remember coming into Miami in the Greyhound bus, and I had never seen skyscrapers like that. I had been to Havana. I lived in a small town uh, in the center of the country, but it was a tiny, tiny uh, harbor fishing village with, with some train uh, tracks and, and uh, docks. I felt very small. I was 13. You know, I wasn't even beginning to be fully grown. And uh, and I was just looking at these things. And so I remember that Miami. And then we lived there till November of 1980. And a family member that lived in Rochester, New York, was able to get my uncle, my, my aunt's husband work and uh, later he was able to get my father work. So we moved to Rochester, New York. We arrived there on the election day, presidential election day in 1980, when Carter lost to, to Reagan. And even in you recounting that, you, I'm watching you, your eyes are closed as you recount that, like you can still see it and you can still remember what it was like to come across. I feel like, at least for me, my only understanding of you said the Muriel boat boat lift mm-hmm. is that opening scene from Scarface where it describes yeah. what happened in Cuba that you know the prisons were open the the asylums were opened and all the people were sent across the water ninety miles north to the United States and in your collection in several different poems you kind of touch on crossing the water, crossing the Atlantic. And what what is that like? Is that the point of your trauma that you are trying now to control when you write? Yeah, I mean, in many ways, my formative life experience was was loss. Um, my dad left Cuba when I was five and I um, was hard on, on me. My mom uh, had to you know, take me to a child psychologist and work with me. And then we left Cuba. So on, on one day I lost my grandparents my church people, my friends on the block, my school friends, it was just gone, all that was gone. I went to Miami, didn't last very long. Then we went to Rochester. And just as we were kind of getting started, you know, I was in 10th grade um, and I met, um, I thought this incredible (laughs) girl and and we, we started going out. It was my first real emotional relationship and, then my parents decided to move to Jacksonville, again, looking for a better job. And I think at, at, at one point there, I just sort of kind of went, okay, this is just the way life is. Whenever you have something, it just gets ripped away. Let's learn to deal with it because that's just what it is. And I think poetry allowed me to build the things that I could keep that nobody could take away from me. Um, but it was something I did that I could have. It was my own. It was inside. It was internal. 
and nobody could take it away. It would just follow me wherever I went. Do you, in a sense, feel like then that you are riding yourself home or riding yourself safe in one place? Yeah, that's that's really good that you say that. You put it that way. Uh, for for a long time, I I felt like I was not home. I felt that I was stuck in a wreck at the side of a wreck, and I couldn't leave. I couldn't go anywhere. And I, I decided. I remember writing in my journal precisely what you said. I said I, I want to come home from the wreck, coming home to my work, creating something that is is mine, and I feel at home in. Although it's very difficult, I remember reading, and I'm I'm going to misquote it. I don't remember exactly, but Toni Morrison was 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 talking about how success is really an internal thing. Success is not an external thing. For her, success is having fewer and fewer regrets. And I thought that was brilliant, and it really spoke to me. That for me, success has become having fewer and fewer regrets. I regret less and less. Ooh, Andy. <laughs> oh my gosh you said so many other good things uh um a lot of the poems in the collection have been published in journals and in various other places as many of your other works have been throughout the course of your career so even as you were finding success at various different levels with the publication of these poems what was that doing to you physically and mentally and emotionally and spiritually yeah no it was a tough grind um i stopped writing around 1997 1998 um when i decided to change careers and i figured things weren't going anywhere writing wise i wasn't getting any publications there was no nothing happening so i decided i was going to go make go out of academia go out of teaching and get a, another career. So between 1997 and 2009 or so, um, I didn't write. I thought that was done. But then um, sometime around 2008, 2009, I, I bought a guitar again. I hadn't had one for years. I started writing songs and then slowly kind of said, well, you know, if I'm writing songs and I might as well write poetry. And I started writing poetry again. And then decided, okay, if I'm writing poetry, I'm going to send out stuff. Um, so beginning in January of 2010, I started writing, uh, I started sending out packets of poems, but I wanted to aim high. I didn't want to get published by publications in the mid-level. I wanted to aim for the top. And, and the reason for that is that I write so little my output is so little that I really wanted to maximize. Eventually, I wanted in my letter, when I submit, I wanted to say, you know, my work has been published and, and then cite several magazines that would get the editor's attention uh, to be picked up from the slush pile because I have no connections. I really didn't know anyone. So I, I started sending out publishing in 2010. I you know, revised, send them out in the whole year. Not a single acceptance. So I started there, no, no problem, we will... Keep going, you know, January, February, March, the directions are coming back. Keep sending out the reviews, they're coming back. And I, I feel okay. I'm talking into a void, and the void is not answering. You know? uh, so I said, oh, you know, yeah, just keep going. I don't know how long it's going to take. And then almost two years to the day, uh, my, I, my phone lights up. And I, I, I was in, early in the morning in bed, and I open it and I see a, a, 
an email from a magazine, which I took to be yet another rejection. And then when I opened it, it was like, oh my God, it, it's an acceptance. It was from Barrow Street. And then very soon thereafter, I got an acceptance from the Massachusetts Review. And, and so at that point, I said, okay, editors are listening. These are slush pile submissions and sending in blind, but they're listening, they're paying attention on that. Really, those two years were tough. And after that point, I said, okay, I must keep going, but I can't keep going like this. This is really killing me. And that's when that external validation came into question. And I started thinking, okay, what do I really want? I want to be happy. I mean, I want to live a why, why am I going to live a miserable life? My how I live the moment is how I live my life. Why do I want to live a life this miserable? It's not worth it. And I'm not going to stop writing. So I have to find another way of doing it. So around what time was all of this? Because I know you said in college was where you discovered your love for poetry and creative writing. And then did you get your MFA right after undergrad? That would have been 93. Okay. 1993. And then I decided to give it a few years. And since things weren't happening, I decided to switch. I, I, I thought, okay, I can read, I can write, and I can BS pretty well. So I'll go to law school. And I applied to law school, um, got in, enjoyed it, loved it. It was really uh, great. I came out of law school and I really didn't like the uh, the law a lot. So I almost from the beginning, I decided I had to come up with an exit strategy, but I did have a law degree. So I ended up going to from a private practice that I loved. Then from there, I moved on to City Hall uh, for the general counsel's office. And then from there, I moved to the IRS, the Department of the Treasury. Um, and I've been with the IRS now since uh, 2007, I believe. Wait, so you went to undergrad, you got an MFA from UF, you went to law school, and since you practice law, I'm assuming you pa- you took and passed the bar, right? That's correct. So, yeah, you took and passed the bar, worked at a firm, then worked for City Hall in Jacksonville, and then now you work for the IRS. And in this entire time, you were writing poems and trying to submit them to journals with the exception of that period from, I guess, like 1998 to 2010, that 10-year period. I sit down every day with poems that I'm working on, read them, spend a little time with them, make corrections, um, and then write, try to write. But generally, my writing is, it, it shows up. Like I'll, I'll be doing something else and I'll have an idea. The other day, for example, I was, I, I guess... The technical term would be weeding, and uh, and I start to think that there was a stain on the on the wall on the fence, and I started to scrub it away, and I cleaned it, and then I said, you know, you clean the stain until you can't see it anymore, but that doesn't mean that it's still not there. You just clean until you don't see the stain anymore. But if you get a microscope, the stain is still there. You're gonna have to clean some more. So that struck me as interesting. I mean, wow, that's that's interesting. I mean, it could be a metaphor for a lot of other stuff. Um, and so I started playing with that and wrote a few lines. And then I've been working on that poem now for about a, a few days. Hopefully the next few weeks, I'll have a possible first draft that doesn't, that's not entirely bad. And then from then it will be months and months, literally months and months of looking at it, reading it, shaping it. Where can this go? Where can this go? And that's the, old, that's the last thing usually that, um, something will reveal itself that surprises me, and it will go, oh, okay, um, okay, I want to go in that direction, and that surprise, I hope, passes on to the to the reader, to the audience. And so, writing for you, I guess, is the pleasure of it. It's not the career, correct? At this point, I don't 
foresee, uh, you know, great public uh, success. For me, success is people reading the work. Everyone counts. You know, if, if two people read it, that's two more people that hadn't read it before. So for me, success is getting the work out there, getting it read, uh, having people use it in their lives, having it be part of their lives. Civil you know, service is what you do. Writing is who you are. You're absolutely right. That's, that's correct. So over the course of how many years did Third Winter and Our Second Country come together? The oldest poem in the collection was written in 1991 for my first MFA workshop. It's um, what Vallejo calls Notre Dame Bridge, which is a, it has those themes of immigration, exile. Um, I'm being surprised that what the end result is, it's not exactly to you, what you expected. Um, and I kept it around. Uh, and so essentially, once I started writing again, I began to think, okay, let's, let's try to put these together into a book. So I think the first iteration of it would have been, um, I would say around 2015 or so. And I had enough poems to, to put together a very short, you know, 48, I made it to 48 poems, which is usually the bottom number. Then it went through a lot of revisions. It became still life. I was sending out, I wasn't getting any bites. Um, I think in 2017, um, one of my poems um, from the Lost Letters to Matias Perez Arenak was picked up by Agni and it was nominated for the Best New Poet series. Uh, and it was picked by Natalie Diaz as one of the Best New Poets for 2017. Um, and then at that point, I had been trying for three or four years, but wasn't getting anywhere. So I reached out to a few editors that I liked and trusted. And after hearing the comments, I decided, you know, I really had to pare down to a, to a chapbook. And sure enough, in, in 2018, it got pick, picked up by, uh, by uh, Paper Nautilus as their discovery chapbook winner. And then what I did was I wanted to keep that as half and then create enough poems to fulfill the other half and create a, a, a bigger book. And then I wrote the poem. This was very recently, uh, maybe two years ago. I wrote the poem, uh, Third Winter in Our Second Country. And I thought that's like really it. I like the title. I can't help it. So I changed the title to that. But so it's basically being a long evolving book where I keep taking poems out and putting, putting poems in and just trying to make it the best it could until. Uh, Trio House Press took it uh, last year. You say the oldest poem is from 1991, and that the, even the chapbook has all been in service of, you know, getting to this full collection. So I want to get to the full collection. So if you could read a few pieces, I'd really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Black and Published family. Before we get to the reading, a little bit about Andy's poetry collection. Third Winter in Our Second Country. So the collection is broken up into two movements, one exploring the ancient and the historical, and the other exploring the more contemporary. And all of it is from the point of view of an immigrant, a Cuban-American who feels neither at home there or here. Here's Andy. Do you have any requests or 
Ooh. <laughs> I think my first request is confession. So I, uh, writing to and from Cuba was um, really difficult and time-consuming. The news didn't get through. And early on, um, oh boy, um, I guess it hurt so much to think of my grandparents, my grandmother and my grandfather that I had left in Cuba um, that I just sort of stopped thinking about them. And later somebody told me that, you know, when you're incarcerated, when you're in prison and, and you're looking at a long time, you sort of, it's just easier to think of everybody outside as dead and then moving on because it's just easier. And I think in, in a small way I did that. Um, and I, until of course they're, the news from caught up with me. So, so this is called confession. Uh, time is on the prowl and the universe is nowhere near Satan. Black hole, meteor, storm surge. The bones of life splinter and choke us. My grandparents fed an orphan who orphaned them and me, his son. I too left them at their door after forgetting our last hug. A revolution drowned them. I let myself believe when you're going under, you swim first for yourself. I was hitting Campbell's in a can and counting Marlboro's when ripples of their deaths found me. That each been dead for months. I cried, yes, until I didn't. And then I didn't. Okay. Can you do two more? Yeah, absolutely. Anything you like. Uh, ooh. <laughs> well, Linda's. <laughs> yes, fly. That's a love poem. I know, but it's also <laughs> about marriage and, and the things that you go through. So I, I like that one too. Yes, fine. Well, Linda, so this is my wife and I, we've been together uh, going on our 29th year now. Congratulations. This is called Flying Melinda's. Some say tightrope, though it sags in the middle until you step in and the slack centers on you. Others high wire, a pencil thin contrail, two flat poles above concrete. Drop a mannequin and consider ribcage and lungs. I say skywalking and no net can ease that plummet. Sky walk, sky fall. Retrace with me that line we saw only later. A black thread on night start. Our pause at the step board altar. Two bodies leaning into future space, daring luck to waver. The wire invisible below. Until death do its part. Each syllable of soul on metal, a vow. Steady, steady on. And then the, the third poem can be anything of your choice, whatever your favorite is or whatever you're feeling inspired by today. I like to read the first poem in the book. It's called New Year's Eve. And I wrote this uh, or began to write it shortly after um, Donald Trump became president and his policies in the border kind of became clear. So it's called New Year's Eve. 
December shuts its door on night's high wall. I clear sky this morning, gusts rattling cages of brambles now, a field's yield of warblers dropped starving from the clouds. Our town goes on with its drizzle and leash dogs. We pass ghosts lean as winter weeds or cattle wire. They know what they are and keep their distance like fog. Again, we turn our faces to lessen the wind's stink. Again, we hope to be neither prey nor hunger, the children in them, nor the chain link kennels. What I noticed is that the collection is, is, has a lot to do, their themes of journeying, um, to be in search of something, and then I wrote better, but not necessarily. Um, and then, you know, the, the sense of deep longing. And then, you know, death is also very centered and not so much just in the background. Like no one really likes to dwell on death, but it's very present in this, in this collection, even if it's not the central theme of each poem. Was, was that all intentional? Like when we were talking about earlier, you know, writing yourself home and writing yourself safe? Yeah, very, very much. Death was sort of a metaphor for loss. Um, it was the easiest metaphor that I latched onto early on. Um, and, and in the early stages of the book, I was writing poems that were much more about loss and its effects and, and having loss and recognizing loss and mourning. And all of that came through the, the metaphor of death. Uh, and then uh, after a while, I wrote a couple of poems that began to, as you say, go further. They, they were kind of about a journey. Okay, so this happened, but not what, what, where, what are we going to do with this? And I, I usually show my poems to my wife once I'm, uh, you know, sure, they're, they're heading in the right direction. And she read a couple of them and she said, you know, I really like these poems, the new ones, because before you were writing, you know, we were really writing beautifully about loss and death, whatever. These poems are about carrying on. They're about moving on. They're about what happens later. And I thought that was very wise of her. So I started to try to consciously work those poems in, but not, not denying death. Um, my favorite book in the Bible is Ecclesiastes, which is all about how do you defeat death? How do you defeat death? Not by building palaces, not by growing wine, not by having affairs, not by doing all that. Um, the, 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 the moment. That's how you defeat death in the moment. Uh, in the moment, we are eternal. We exist forever. And death cannot take that away from us. But you said at first that death for you was a metaphor for loss. And so that makes me think that death is a great equalizer. But in it being a metaphor for you, and being an immigrant coming from Cuba to America and how that has affected you, is that then a sense is like with death being a great equalizer for all people, is loss the great equalizer among immigrants? Among everybody. Everybody's an immigrant. Mm -hmm. We can never go back home. Nobody, nobody can ever go back home. Um, we, we, all, we, we all lose, as human beings, we all lose. That is what life is. We, lose uh, slowly we lose everything until we lose 
our own lives. Mm. Um, so it's just that the, I think for the, for an immigrant immigrant kid that becomes obvious. Um, some people take a while to to reach there. So it, it takes life to do certain things later on for you to you know come to that understanding. And for for an immigrant, it's sort of obvious. You see it. That's what happens. Um, uh, and, and of course, there's a lot, a great deal of privilege. I mean, we live in a first world country. Um, I'm male. I'm light enough that I don't have to deal with a lot of the racism darker people have to deal with. Um, I'm relatively uh, well off. I have good health insurance. All of that is privilege. And I used to feel terribly guilty about that. Um, like, what am I doing with this privilege? And um, so I decided, you know, to do little things here and there, um, mostly involving donating causes and doing things like that. And then ultimately I realized I'm, I'm not making myself feel any better doing this. Okay. You brought up something that I had been thinking about since I asked you to come on the show. And you say that, you know, that you have a, a great deal of privilege and I've been to Cuba. And so when I got there, I was very much struck about how much like America it was like. I mean, there are white Cubans and there were black Cubans. And so you mentioned that, you know, you are, are light enough presenting. And this podcast is called Black and Published, but, you know, it's for black indigenous people of color. So that includes a wide range of what black that really means and who will come on the show and, and talk and share their experience. And so while so much of your experience is rooted in being other because you are an immigrant and you're not native to the United States, the, when people see you, they may not notice that. So in, in that aspect, do you feel that you've had an easier life in this country that is so steeped in racism because you don't automatically present as other until someone says your full name, which you go by Andy, so that, that rarely happens, or until they hear you speak and detect the hint of the accent because it's not super strong, but it is still there. Yes. Absolutely, I've had a much easier life. Uh, I went, well, yeah, I mean, duh. Um, the, the, I was, um, I took a Greyhound bus when I was in, in law school to go to Rochester, New York to visit my aunt and uncle. And I sat next to this African-American young woman, not, not much older than me, but still young. And we were talking and, and I said, um, you know, honestly, I don't think the United States is that racist. I mean, really people talk about it but I don't see the racism. She goes, that's because you're not black. And when you go into a store, they don't follow you and keep track of what you're doing. And when you walk down a neighborhood, everybody's looking at you like, what, are they, what is that person doing here? Do they belong here? And when you're doing your job and you knock at the door and people scream until you leave. And I thought, that's true. You, you experience America differently depending on your, the color of your skin being the most significant one. And so from then on, it easily became clear to me once I started paying attention, the, the, the enormous racism that, that exists even to this day in the United States, absolutely. And, and, the, and the privilege, you know, of if I shut up and I just move along, people assume I belong, you know, they don't question my, my presence. But even though you don't experience racism in the way a dark-skinned or a traditionally African-American or brown-skinned person does in this country, you 
definitely know what it is to be othered. And you talk about that in the collection where, you know, your own otherness is very apparent, if even if only to yourself, in a way that it makes up a good deal of your identity. No, no, I agree. And I think, right, one thing is um, we've all been burned. We've all experienced a burn, so we know what it feels like. It's just that some of us get a little burn when we're cooking, and some of us get, you know, horrible first-degree burns all over our body. So, yes, yes, I I have experienced otherness, and I see myself as an other. Um, I don't see myself as fully belonging here. I I am not Cuban, and I really, but I'm not really American either. Mm. So like I'm, I'm sort of both and and neither. And so was it intentional on your part to put that that uncertainty of otherness into this collection? I don't think that I could have helped not done it. I think that that's part of how I I, I approach the world and how I perceive it. So it becomes part of of it. Now the, the thing you do do is you notice it and then you try to play with it you try to highlight it as, as a writer so, so what am I doing here oh I see I'm thinking this way so let's try to highlight that let's try to make it easier for the reader to pick up on it and so it, it's, it's a matter of making it easier for the audience to read where you're coming from you just have to notice it and say okay I'm, I'm gonna highlight it and play with it. and and writing about yourself your experience there's the otherness, there's the immigrant experience, there's protest, there's the the wages of colonialism. I think I wrote at one point, former colonies are countries built on blood and bone. And, and all of that is apparent. And I think all of that is part of who you are. And because the collection is divided into two halves, was it your intention to make sure that all the poems in part one were in direct conversation with the poems in part two? It was a journey, so yes. It, 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 so the, the first part of the poem, the first part of the book, it's kind of a trip through history, which mixes both the personal, uh, but but I go back in time, I begin with our immigration, but then I talk about you know the, the Trojans having to leave Troy when they were destroyed. And I go back in time to a series of those things and then come back up again towards the end of the poem, that uh, the second half. So that's sort of the history. And then the second part of the poem, of the book, is much more like looking into, now that you know the context, you know, looking into specific things that happened in that context. You have a lot of plays with religion in the collection too. You have Islam, you have Judaism and, and Hebrew, and, you, and of course you have Christianity. So all of that is there along with the colonialism and the racism and the loss and the otherness, with with you touching on so many divisive topics, what do you want people to get out of this collection? I, I, I think I want people to honestly examine their beliefs, to honestly examine what is it that I stand for uh, and to open their eyes, right? I mean, we, I think it open your eyes to the cruelty that has happened. And, and that's part of the, of, of the book. It's like, look, these things ha- are happening and have happened. We have to open our eyes. And the second thing is, um, and we need, we need to, to change. 
we can do better. We are able to do better, so we must do better. I'm just going to let that rest. That's a great ending note. I want to transition to a speed round before we get to our final question. I let you go for this afternoon. Um, what is your favorite book? I think the book that I revisit the most is Moby Dick. It's one that I read over and over and over again. And even though I am not, I don't consider myself a religious person, the Bible, and also the Jewish Talmud, uh, which I read often. Wow. That could be a whole separate conversation. <laughs> Moby Dick, the Bible, and the Jewish Talmud. Um, who is your favorite author? Again, I know this is weaseling out, but I love Shakespeare. I love his work. I think he was just incredible. Um, but I, I think my current living author, um, it's probably Ada Limon, Natalie Diaz, phenomenal. Um, Eduardo Corral as well. There's so many great poets writing today. But I think Ada, she's just uh, out of this world. One of my favorite poets of all time is Lucille Clifton. I love her work. She's phenomenal. Um, what's phenomenal. Okay, so along the same lines, who is your favorite poet? I think the poet, the only poet that I've read their letters, their journals, and their complete works is Sylvia Plath. And I have read and reread, and I find her, to me, to just to be phenomenal. And I'm sorry she died so young. I wish she had had a lot more time to develop. It was obviously an incredible talent. And you mentioned that you play guitar. What is your favorite song? A Day in the Life by the Beatles. I love that song. It's, it's old school. Um, but I keep going back. I love Biggie Smalls, um, Where Brooklyn At, the little snippet that he did with Tupac. I love that. If I had to teach a class in rhyming, a master class in rhyming, I would pick that section, like a double and triple and quadruple rhymes and how smart it is. Uh, so I love that. I keep listening to it. I'm fine with that because we have a Biggie and Pac reference on this show and those are instant classics. So we're good. Um, I, I want to play a quick a little game called Rewriting the Classics. Name one book you wished you wrote. The Heart of Darkness, but I would do it right. I would get it right. Just Joseph Conrad, Conrad. Love what he tries to do, but he fails miserably. That actually answers my second question, which was name one book you would like to change and how. The Heart of Darkness, you just said, you <laughs> like to do it right. I'll, so I'll do my favorite book that I wouldn't change. Again, I'd have to be Moby Dick. I just love that book. I wish I had written it. It's, it's amazing. Okay. And then my final question, well, before our final question, does writing make you happy? You, you you spoke so much about the pain involved and the guilt involved and the the and how much it takes out of you, even if it's only 30 minutes a day. Does it make you happy at this point? It, it gives me joy and it allows me to live in peace mm. with myself. And so then my final question for you today, and you, you talked about this a little earlier about what death is or death is not from your opinion. So when you are no longer here and you're among the ancestors, what would you like someone to write about you and the legacy that you left behind in words? Well, I would I would love for somebody to say, because this is my aspiration, that he gave me an example 
of how to live without fear. Um, not you know trying to diminish it, not trying to say it's no good, but accepting the enormity of it and say, you know, but, but I'm not afraid. It's fine. Thank you, Andy. That was perfect. Big thank you to Andy Rojas for being here today on Black and Published. Make sure you check out Andy's full-length poetry collection, Third Winter in Our Second Country, out now from Trio House Press. And if you're not following Andy, follow him on the socials. He's at OKAporia on Twitter, and that's O-K-A-P-O-R-I-A, and Rojas underscore Andres underscore Rojas on Instagram. That's our show for the week. If you like this episode and want more Black and Published, head to our Instagram page. It's at Black and Published, and that's B-L-K and Published. There, I've posted a bonus clip from my interview with Andy, where he explains what he loves about working at the IRS, despite his first passion being for poetry. Check it out and let me know what you think in the comments. Next time, our guest will be Ashanti Anderson, author of the poetry chapbook, Black Under. I'll holler at y'all next week. Peace.